Wonderful. Please grab your seats. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Gwen and I went for uh, singing and leading for us. Thank you, Tim, for keeping us right. Thank you, Ian, for leading. And thank you very much, Ailey, for reading uh, for us this morning. Well, let's get into uh, this wonderful, amazing part of 1 Peter as we dive into what is a well-known part of this letter that we've been going through over these last few weeks. I want to uh, draw your attention right up front as to what I think is, is the key verse in today's passage. And that is verse 9. It'd be great if you could have your Bibles open. It'll be good uh, for you to follow along as we go through this, especially as we'll be chopping and changing through the passage um, as we see what Peter is doing um, in this part of, of his letter. And, and, and uh, verse 9, I think, is the goal of our sermon this morning. Everything that we look at today is all so that, there's our, our important linking word, that's another important linking word for us, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. That is the goal of Peter's section this morning, to not keep our mouths shut when it comes to our Christian faith, but to be bold in proclaiming that Jesus Christ uh, is Lord to our friends and our families, that uh, you may proclaim. Now remember where we are uh, with Peter in this letter. We are scattered, chosen, um, exilic people of God, spread over vast distances, separated from each other, suffering day in, day out, persecution for the sake of the gospel. And as, as the whole reason for the book, if you remember, is um, to know what the grace of God is and to stand firm in the midst of suffering, in the midst of that kind of persecution, in the midst of a world which is not on your side, that is wholly against you in how you think and feel and act and react. So each section of Peter's argument is going to point to that end. What is this grace of God and how do we stand firm? Well, today, very clearly, we see built on everything we've already looked at in terms of our eternal unspoiled inheritance that God has won and stored up for us by his grace and in his mercy through Jesus' death on the cross, which saves us for a life of obedience, which allows us to live a life of holiness. So today, standing on what we already are in God's grace, that being this royal holy nation, we stand firm in that by preaching the good news of this incredible, excellent God. Now, that's all well and good, but we know, and Peter knows, and the people in Asia Minor know, and they're reading this for the first time, they know uh, that in an exilic uh, experience in the world, speaking of Jesus is very hard, which is why Peter is writing this. It's why he's calling us to stand firm in it. This is a difficult thing to do. He wouldn't be encouraging us to stand firm in God's grace if it was an easy thing to do, especially, I think, when it comes to our evangelism. On uh, Thursday night, I met up with a number of you in your house group for prayer about um, our evangelism, and I shamelessly used you for today's sermon by asking you uh, what the most difficult thing about evangelizing is. What you find hard about evangelizing to your friends, to your families, to your neighbors, to your colleagues. Um, and, And the usual suspects all came up as we sort of answered that question together. The things that stop you, the things that stop me in my speaking about Jesus to my friends is that we feel silly. It just sounds ridiculous in the ears of the postmodern, enlightened mind. 
We feel the cold shoulder or the uncomfortable grunts and we try to. And we, we don't like that. We, we don't feel we have the right answers to give to people when they do engage. And so we sort of feel like we're a bit of a fraud. We don't know what we're talking about. Everyone else feels so much cleverer. Or we're simply very afraid of what people think about our stance on ethical social issues. Really afraid. And so we keep silent. I was telling this group on Thursday that my ace in the hole for starting an evangelistic conversation was answering the question, oh, so what is it you do? And I was like, this is great. This is a great way. I have the perfect answer. That's a great way to engage with people talking about Jesus. I'll just tell them what I'll do, and, and it'll get them going. And so that's what I do. And that's certainly what I did one uh, Thursday morning. It was at the beginning of term uh, a year ago when uh, Toby had just started to P1 or, or, uh, on his first year of school, first week of school. All the parents were sort of huddling around, excited to get to know each other, to see each other for the first time. And I was in a particular group of parents, and we were sort of chatting about what we did after we dropped off our kids at school. And, and, and the answers came back as to what each of our jobs were excitedly to the middle of the group. And the responses were equally exciting back. Oh, I'm an architect. Says one, oh, that's very exciting, everyone says. That's amazing. And, uh, what have you produced? What's the most amazing thing you've done? Did you, did you build your own house? How very exciting. Next person, oh, I'm a paediatric surgeon. Wow, that's incredible. Paediatric surgeon. That must be the most demanding job, but a rewarding one. You hero. We, we were clapping for you only yesterday. Isn't this, oh, well done, a paediatric surgeon. Oh, I'm an airline pilot. Oh, wow. That's incredible. What have you seen? What's the most dangerous thing you've been? Goodness me, that must be very exciting. Come to me. Oh, I'm a minister. Silence. Total embarrassed tumbleweed silence. I'm really not kidding. You could hear a pin drop. A silence followed by the only question that anyone might know to ask in Scotland, which is, oh, is that in the Church of Scotland? To which I replied, she, but she, well, no, it's a <clears throat> sort of a small, it's called a church plant. You probably wouldn't have heard the word church plant before. It's a small independent church on the edge of Edinburgh. It's called Redeemer. You wouldn't have heard of it. It's very embarrassing. More silence. No follow-up questions. No excitable engagement about what I believe. No chat about the Bible. No inquisitiveness at all. Instead, everyone feeling brutally uncomfortable, sort of looking at their shoes and sort of looking at their watches, desperate to be anywhere else. I was desperate to be anywhere else. And we don't want to be that guy. I just don't want to be that guy, the weird one, the odd one, with the weird job and the strange family and the funny weekend plans that involve church. We just don't want to be that person. We don't want to be that uncomfortable all the time. We just don't want to. It's horrible. What I wouldn't have given in that moment to have been an airline pilot or a pediatric surgeon. It's much less hassle. It's, it, it's far less embarrassing. It's much less of a turn-off, much, much less of a buzzkill of being a, feeling like you're a, sort of a loser, the, the weird one. It's really hard. And in that moment, I'm ashamed to say I was mortified. Even part of me ashamed of who I was, what I had to say, and who Jesus was. And I sort of melted away from the conversation as everyone else did. Shameful. Well, that, says Peter, is the exilic experience of the everyday Christian. It's just better going with the crowd, and we find that being in the minority can silence us. It silenced me. And so we hesitate to proclaim God's incredible goodness to humanity in the face of a consensus around us that says God isn't excellent, or he doesn't exist, and the church is at best a joke or at worst a danger to society. And in those moments, we feel all of that brought to bear on our exilic experience. 
We live in a society where most people, the majority, don't back Jesus, where most people think the Bible is an irrelevance, where miracles are a fantasy, where the belief in the end of the world coming at some point in the near future is for the lunatic or, or, or the madman, akin to the man on the street sort of wearing a sandwich board and, and yelling that the end of the world is nigh. We live in a society where the majority thinks that the church is dying, full of hypocrites and, 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 and bigots. And in the face of that kind of consensus, we are very slow to speak. We hesitate to proclaim. We may even begin to doubt ourselves. We may even be ashamed of what is true, ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, don't be, says Peter. Speak. Speak, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you and saved you. Stand firm in the true grace of God. So Peter wants to write to persuade us that the majority need not intimidate us. That in fact the majority have got it wrong in the past about Jesus and the verdict of the majority that they have on Jesus now does not matter. And that brings us to our first point of two this morning. For we see that Jesus was himself rejected by men, but he was nonetheless chosen by God. You'll see in verse 4 um, that there are two verdicts when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is described as a stone. We'll, we'll come back to that a bit later. But there are two verdicts of him, this stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight chosen, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is man's verdict. He is rejected. And then there is the creator of the universe's verdict, which is that he is chosen. And as we'll see, only one of those verdicts ends up really counting. Now, before we get stuck into this passage, um, it's helpful to explain how it's constructed. It's, it, it, it's well constructed. Peter's really thought about this. We've sort of looked at the structure of Peter over the past few weeks as we've been going through these sermons, and Peter's very careful as to how he arranges his material. This time, you'll see that verse 4 introduces the, the theme of Jesus' rejection, and yet he's being chosen. And verse 5 introduces Christians, those who believe in Jesus. Then verse 6 and 8 expands on what he says about Jesus, and verse 7 and 9 and 10 expands on what it says about Christians. So we sort of overlap as we go through this. Jesus and us, Jesus and us. So we're going to take the Jesus verses first, verse uh, 4 and verses 6 and 8. We're going to do that first, and then we're going to look at the Christian verses afterwards. And then I'm going to explain why Peter sort of oscillates uh, back and forth between the two. So the Jesus verses, 4, 6 and 8, as you come to him... Writes Peter, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well, the consensus about Jesus in the first century, as we know, was not to hail him universally as God's king. Quite the opposite. The Jewish high court rejected him as a blasphemer. The Roman governor was content to go along with it, and he ordered him to be crucified. As he was preached afterwards throughout the known world, some of the preachers, his disciples, his apostles, they were mocked, scorned, rejected, driven out of town, accused of being troublemakers, killed. Jesus was not universally popular. He was rejected. But Peter writes that we shouldn't be too bothered by that because there's a second verdict about Jesus, that of the creator of the universe. And his verdict is very different. 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a foundation stone that is chosen and precious, says God. God has designed and decreed it that Jesus should be the foundation of all that he is doing in the world, in other words, and that everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so there's a choice between two verdicts. There's a majority verdict of men and the minority true verdict of God. It ought to be obvious which one's going to count. But then Peter expands on this and he says, well, what about those who reject Jesus? Well, actually, they've just got it wrong. As it's written, the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone anyway. That's what God's saying. And we need to understand the image that Peter's using to understand the illustration that Peter is making. In those days, <clears throat> in the days that Peter is writing, um, rather than cutting a stone um, for a building, sometimes that happened, but, but often the way that builders um, worked, the way that they built a building is that they would select a stone in the quarry that was the right kind of shape for the job to, to, to be the right stone for the particular foundation. It's much like, I think, a dry stone waller would use. They find a good stone to start off and then everything comes off that stone. And for the cornerstone, which is the foundation stone, if you like, you need a very specific stone. It was, that was sort of huge and solid. It was without fault. It didn't have any cracks or fault lines in it. It was square on. And it was huge. Everything else could be built on top of it and everything else sort of measured up from it. So that The cornerstone sort of set the parameter for the entire building, in other words. And it, it wasn't easily shifted when it was laid. That's it. It's there, it's there forever. And in this case that Peter lays out here, that the, the chief architect, God, has got a very particular stone in mind. He's got a very particular view on what this stone should be for building his building to, to stand firm. And he's in the quarry. He, he finds this stone. It's massive. It's square. It's without fault. It's called Jesus Christ. He said, that's perfect. That's my stone. But, but then on Monday morning, the cowboy builders rock up. And they look at the stone that the architect has chosen. And they're like, you know what? No way. Nope. It's, it's enormous. It's far too heavy. It'll take too long. Let, let, let's get this over and done with. Let's choose another stone, one that's slightly smaller. Let's go for that one. A bit less hassle. We'll get the job done in no time. And so they get halfway through their building project, and they get it wrong. By Wednesday, the architect turns up. The walls are insecure. The builder is all over the place. And, and the architect just says, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to tear down this building and start again. That, that's not my stone. That's not the cornerstone. I will have my stone chosen to build my building. The builders are rejected. You can imagine how ridiculous it is if we were to sort of translate that into the modern-day building practices, the towers and skyscrapers that we see decorate our world. Oh, says the builders, these massive girders, they're just too big. Let's just use other ones. It just wouldn't happen. <laughs> because people die. That's the effect of rejecting the cornerstone. People die, simple as. At the end of the day, regardless of what the builders decide to do or choose to do, the architect's view will and must prevail. It is the only view that matters. It is the only view that works. There's no element of, well, each view is valid when we come to the structural integrity of a massive building. Or, or, or come and share what you think or, or you feel should go here. There's, there's no space for sort of having to accommodate a plurality of opinions which we all throw on the table when we're building a skyscraper. It just doesn't happen. It's that stone, it's the architect's stone, or it's nothing. Or people die. It's not arrogance, it's just true.
If you reject the foundation stone, the stone that the architect has chosen, says Peter, and you build on something else, well, your verdict, I'm sorry, it just doesn't count. It just takes more time. You get sacked as builders. The architect goes elsewhere, and he will get his stone built on. And for the builders, says Peter, it's not just being removed. It doesn't just take longer for this building to be built. It also becomes a total disaster for them. Look at verse 7. The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Whether they like it or not, there's nothing they could do about it. It will be built on. God will have his way. But more than that, it becomes a stone that trips them up, verse 8. A stone of stumbling for them and a rock of offense against them. They stumble as they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, God's verdict, says Peter, is a verdict that only counts when it comes to Jesus. And this quote from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. That that is cited frequently in the New Testament, mostly in conjunction with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was rejected at his trial. The Sanhedrin found him to be a blasphemer. They put him to death. But three days later, God announced his verdict as the tomb was burst open and Jesus was raised. They rejected and discarded him. They murdered him. But Jesus rose from the dead and became the stone anyway because God said he would. You see? The universe is not a democracy. And it doesn't matter how many votes Jesus does or doesn't get, he's still going to win. Because there's only one person who decides the future of the universe, and that's God, and he backs Jesus. This is my chosen, my precious cornerstone. He says it repeatedly in the Gospels. At Jesus' baptism, this is my son. At the transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen one. And at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the whole event is God saying, this is my son, my cornerstone. And if you don't think that he is my son, well, it's not going to change the future of the universe. You're wrong, and God will have his way in the end, and the only one who will be hurt is is us who, who would choose to reject him. Jesus is the cornerstone. He just is. He just is the foundation of everything that is happening in the world, whether the people around believe that or hear to that or or, or want to know it or not. And that, says Peter to the exile, is really, really helpful. You will feel on your own, embarrassed, silenced, ashamed even, like I did that morning at the school gates, wondering if I should chosen another cornerstone. But regardless of how you feel, Jesus, says Peter, just is who he says he is. He just is who God says he is. He is your cornerstone, your foundation. He is the foundation of the earth, the be-all and end-all of human life and meaning and human endeavor. He just is. The focal point of everything that God is doing in the earth. He just is. So, So don't go silent. You have literally bedrock foundational truth on your side in the risen Lord Jesus. The factual history of him having raised behind you. So speak. Proclaim, proclaim his excellencies in the light of the one whose verdict really matters. This is the true grace of God, says Peter, that Jesus is this cornerstone. By God's grace, he gave us himself in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the foundation of a new building, a new kingdom, epitomized, incredible inheritance we learned about a few weeks ago, one for all those who will believe in his name, stand firm in it, in Jesus Christ. Speak the name and the work of Jesus, the cornerstone. And so that is true of Jesus. 
rejected by men, chosen by God. But Peter now moves on to say that that is exactly the same for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And this takes us breathtakingly simply to our second and last point this morning. Therefore, like Jesus, you exiles will be rejected by men, but also chosen by God. Uh, You might wonder why we're sort of jumping around from verse 4 to 6 and 8 and then back to verse 5, 9 to 10. That's because, as I said at the beginning, that's how Peter is doing it. He's sort of weaving these two strands of the exilic Christian experience with Jesus Christ himself. They're sort of so inextricably linked that he sort of binds them together. It's like strands of a cord wrapped around each other to make a rope. They They sort of hold together. Peter does that so that we cannot compare and contrast ourselves with Jesus. That's all we can do. Jesus, me, Jesus, me. It looks like we're exactly the same. What is true of Jesus is also true of the Christians, of the elect exiles. He's doing it very deliberately. And so as we see in verse 4 and 6 and 8 of Jesus, let's have a look at verses 5 and 9 and 10 of us. And, And so notice the exact same language that he uses all the way through. Jesus is chosen in verse 6. Christians are chosen in verse 9. Jesus is rejected in verse 4. Christians are rejected in the whole of the letter. That's why, he's, that's why he's writing to us. Peter wants us to know that we are like Jesus in this regard. If we are built on him as our foundation, we are also chosen by God and precious. With the verdict of the majority on the church and on Christians of rejection proving to be an irrelevance in the face of the verdict that God has over you, chosen, mine, my possession, precious. If you were to do a straw poll of what uh, people think of the church, I'm sure they would say that it is irrelevant, out of date, a joke, bigoted, dangerous, not an institution that would be allowed to exist in our postmodern world. I heard someone say that to me not so long ago. They say it shouldn't be allowed to exist. That was the language from a very normal, bog-standard person on the street. And many institutions who claim to be part of the church that really aren't, well, well, maybe in some ways they're right. But actually, for the church that is built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, however small and insignificant and weak and bullied, like these nine or ten Christians in Cappadocia, or these five or seven, six or seven Christians in Pontus, this little church redeemer on the edge of a city, then this is what God has to say about it, verse 5. As you come to us like living stones, you tiny groups of Christians, you are living stones like Jesus is. You are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that exact same language is repeated again in verse 9, isn't it? In fact, he pretty much mimics it. He repeats it verbatim. He sort of says, guys, if you've missed that in verse 5, let me just repeat it to you again. Let me expound on what that looks like for you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lives. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Whatever the world thinks of Christians, God thinks of them in in, in very different ways. In, In three ways, as being his holy chosen temple, his holy chosen priesthood, and his holy chosen people. 
it's hard to get our head around what's going on here because Peter sort of mixes in metaphors uh, like I used to when I was at school. Um, and my English teacher once told me that I, I wrote using the machine gun method. I sort of spray the paper with metaphors and hopes one of them sticks. And from the length of my emails I send you all, I'm sure you all agree, and I'm very, very sorry. It's just how I write. But Peter uses a lot of metaphors here, and he mixes them all together. And, and he's not just hoping they stick, he uses them deliberately, and he mixes them up deliberately, because all of them are hard to disengage from each other. They all sort of say the same thing, as much as each one is unique. So in verse 5, he starts by using the metaphor of the new temple. That's what spiritual house means. He's sort of talking about the temple in Jerusalem, one of the wonders of the ancient world, made with enormous stones. And Peter says, you're like those stones building up the temple. You're like a temple. Sort of as your individual stones sort of building on top of each other, stacked on top of each other, built together, you're representing this incredible spiritual house. In other words, you're the place which shows God's glory. You're the place where worship is given to the God who is worthy of it. You're the place where God's glory was meant to be displayed and proclaimed to all the nations, as Solomon's temple sort of did back in the day. You exiles, says Peter, you are a temple of the living God. But then he changes his metaphor and says, but you're not only the temple, you're also the priests who work in the temple. You are the representatives of God on earth who speak for Jesus and who offer sacrifices to God on, on behalf of the people. In other words, you're sort of the, the whole Old Testament shebang, really. The, the priests, the temple, the, the, the sacrifices. You're, you're, you're the entire system designed in Israel to declare God's glory to the nations. To proclaim God's excellencies, to offer worship to him. That's, that's now you tiny church in Cappadocia, the people of God. That is what God thinks of you, the church. And as he expands further on what he means by this, Peter uses words taken from Exodus, doesn't he, of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, you belong to him. It's easy, isn't it, to uh, uh, just imagine that we're not very significant sort of gathered here on a Sunday morning, um, especially sort of in a pandemic where we're either doing it online or we're separated from each other. There's a handful of us who sort of make it, a lot of us who are ill, we're being pinged, having to isolate. Even in normal times, and the verdict against the church is so damning, so embarrassing. The headlines that say there's no future for the church in the modern world were schools of thought tell us that the evolutionary tendency of humans was to create God to keep us going, but, but thankfully we're sort of now moving beyond that. When everything is, in the world's perspective, bigger and better, more significant than the church, where church numbers are declining in droves, everything else just seems to be doing better, it just does. We are a minority. And we can easily just subtly begin to share those verdicts. Our confidence can be taken away. But God just doesn't agree with the consensus. So for Jesus, so for his people. Rejected, but by God chosen. Peter wants to urge us not to take your view of the church from your society's view of the church. The majority is wrong. Just as they were wrong about Jesus, and so it will come to pass that one day they will be shown to be wrong about his church. You small, insignificant, scattered, exodic Christians, God's verdict will be proven in you to be right.
But why is Peter telling us this? Why does he want us to be absolutely convinced that we shouldn't trust the verdict of the majority? Why? Well, because of where we started back in verse 9, and this is where we finish. I'm telling you all of this, says Peter, so that the God who has chosen you, who has set you apart, I'm telling you all of this so that you may proclaim who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, these last verses really help us with this passage. This is why I think um, verse 9 is so key. They tie everything up perfectly, because without them, you have a very unusual passage, if you've noticed. Without them, you see, we would look on these verses and think, oh, there are two types of people represented in the world. Some of us who naturally get it right about Jesus, and those who just naturally get it wrong about Jesus. So there's people who believe in Jesus, well done them, well done me. They are the, 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 the spiritually insightful among us and I'm one of them. And then there's some who get it wrong. Well, bad luck to them. They're the people who just are doomed. That's that's a real shame. Without these verses, we can become incredibly arrogant in our exilic experience, incredibly self-centered, feeling militantly proud of our glorious isolation. We're right. We have the backing of God. You'll be found out in the end. Bully for you. But that is not at all the people that are represented here. For surprisingly, Peter then tells us that all of us were once the bad sort of people who had rejected God. We were the people in darkness. We were the people who rejected God and failed God. We were the people who needed and lacked God's mercy. And the difference isn't better foresight on my part or better religious judgment on your part. The difference is God's mercy. The thing we were meant to proclaim is not that God is excellent and we realised it and you didn't follow me. Rather, what we were meant to proclaim is that God is excellent because he has shown incredible mercy to a wretch like me. Follow him. And I want to tell you how lost I was without him, how found I am with him. And to make that point, in giving this Christian testimony in verse 10, Peter again dives into the Old Testament and specifically to the book of Hosea. And that's our last illustration. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book of Hosea, but, but, but the prophet Hosea was writing uh, many hundreds of years before this, um, preaching at a time in Israel when God's people has, as a whole, had really, really messed up with God. The entire nation had turned against God. The image that is being used in Hosea is one of rank or uh, um, idolatry and, and adultery. The, the, the word that is repeated over and over again is whoredom. Israel, you have whored yourselves out to all of the nations around you. You have been found in bed with all the other gods, and God finds that reprehensible. And effectively, God says in, in Hosea, I, I'm going to divorce you. The relationship between us is now over. And to demonstrate this to the people, Hosea the prophet has three children, and he's told by God to give them specific names to represent the situation of the people before God. And their names are not my people, no mercy, and unloved. Those are literally their their, their names. That's literally what they're called. Lo Ami, not my people, Lo Rahama, no mercy. It's incredible, isn't it? Can you imagine being called that? Hearing your name read out in the register in front of everyone in your class. Timothy, present. 
Isla present, no mercy, yeah, I'm here. Unloved, are you here? Yeah, I'm here. It's staggering. It's embarrassing. It's also quite damning if that name is actually the verdict over you, over your people. People far from God, people who had rejected God, people who believed in the wrong verdict about God, who believed that he wasn't who he said he was, that he wasn't the loving creator God that he claimed to be, that he didn't have our best interests at heart. But then wonderfully, even to the people in Hosea's day, God was ready and willing to show wonderful, incredible mercy. People not deserving of it, nor worthy of it. And of them, God now says, you were in darkness, but now you're in light. You were not my people. You were called not my people, but your name gets changed by heavenly deed poll. You are now my people. Hosea is pleased to announce that his child's name has been changed. It changes in the book to God's people. We're we're now definitively his children. The one called no mercy is now called mercy. The one called unloved, you're now called deeply loved. An incredible change has taken place. Your very nature has changed. Your name has changed, meaning your identity has changed. From not being loved, from not deserving mercy, from not being God's people to someone who is deeply loved, being given God's mercy, through which you have been given the designation of God's son, God's daughter, his people. I wonder how you would answer now the question, what is the church? Well, here in Peter, building on Hosea, this is your most definitive answer to that very question. The church, God's people, are a people solely defined by receiving God's mercy. And the trouble with a society whose entrance requirement is mercy means that anyone can get in. And all sorts of anyone can get in. All kinds of wretched, reprehensible people. All sorts of failed people, all sorts of morally compromised people, people with all sorts of checkered and truly awful pasts, if the entrance requirement is mercy. And you're willing to receive mercy, well, you can come in. And all kinds of people are going to get in. So in some respects, it's no wonder that the church has a mixed reputation. We're a rum lot and we're full of failure. And yet in Jesus, as we build on the foundation of his promises, on his death, as we looked at two weeks ago, on his word that we saw last week, so we are built up into a glorious people once we were in the darkness like everyone else. But now we are in his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, now we are a people, not just any people, God's own people, his own possession now having received mercy. And God's intention, therefore, for us is that we lift our heads high, that we don't cower, we don't lose our confidence because the world doesn't think anything of us and thinks very lowly of our king. But spurred on by God's verdict, we refuse to keep silent. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim. Notice as we finish that you you need to use words for this. Many people know the quote attributed to Francis of Assisi preached the gospel, use words if you have to, the idea that you can love people into the kingdom, words are optional. Well, the Bible just doesn't say that. 
Yes, we have to love people as we speak, and often our actions draw people to listening to the gospel, and sometimes we just have to be friends with people a long time before we really get to the gospel. But something has to be said. Words have to be used. Something is to be proclaimed. You need to explain who Jesus is, what he has done for you. You need to explain the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So don't be silenced. Don't be afraid. Don't be swayed by the verdict of the world over the church or over Jesus. Live and speak for him. For we are saved through mercy to be God's people in the earth, chosen as Christ. Chosen as Christ is chosen himself by God and set off on an eternity that will never spoil or perish or fade, bringing people with us in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you so very much for your words to us this morning. Thank you for the uh, wonderful encouragement of 1 Peter to us. Thank you so much for your wonderful grace, for your incredible mercy, for your love that you uh, set out after us to pursue us and track us down and to hunt us down and and to bring us into this incredible relationship with a loving Heavenly Father God. Heavenly Father, thank you for for the life of obedience and holiness that we are called to live now that we are called children of God. And Heavenly Father, thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, he just is, the cornerstone, a foundation of the history of the world, the, 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 the totality of everything that you are doing in this place. Heavenly Father, we pray that in in the moments where we feel so frightened and threatened and so overawed by the verdict of the world around us that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would stand firm on the foundation on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would be fearless in our exilic existences to be able to speak of the Lord Jesus, to speak how we were saved um, from being wretches to being people, children of the living God, possessions of him, so that many others may see the Lord Jesus for themselves and know the gospel for themselves as well. Father God, please, as a church, as a church plant, help us to not give up speaking the gospel. Help us to keep speaking the gospel to each other in love and help us to enjoy the truths of scripture, which tells us that we are saved and safe in the Lord Jesus Christ, ready for an eternity with him. We pray with thanksgiving all these things in the name of the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, our saviour. Amen.